we've been doing this series called I Don't Fit, going through 1 Peter, talking about how, yeah, we live in this awesome community of the church, but you know what? A lot of times we don't really seem like we fit with the world around us. So we're going to keep going on through 1 Peter today. So grab your Bibles, power up your phones to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read a section in just a minute. We're just finishing a section in 1 Peter that was about submission. Who found that incredibly challenging the last couple of weeks? Oh my goodness, I did. If you didn't, you weren't paying attention, or you're just so far down the spiritual journey compared to me, which you pretty well are, that you just know all that stuff already. But Peter was just challenging us of what it's like to submit our lives um, in Christ and how, that, how it flushes out in the real world. So we're coming to, we came to the end of that last Sunday, and now today we're going to come to a section where he begins to do what he'd done earlier, begin to just write about practically about how Christians can live in a world where they don't fit, where they're living in a world where they seem like I, that everybody seems, a lot of people seem different than me. And so let's read what Peter wrote in this section here today. Then we're going to break it down and see what it says about how we should live out our Christian lives in this world. Ready? 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Remember, Peter's writing this particularly to a group of Christians who are living in a, in a culture where, in the Roman world where everybody was against them. Where basically they were Christians, they were misfits, that the world looked at them like they didn't fit in, and, he's, and they were zealous to do God's work. He said, so who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts." always being ready to make a defense to anyone, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, and this is a hard verse, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Pray with me this morning. Father, we want ears to hear. We want to have your spirit. We open up our hearts to the activity of your spirit so that we can hear what you're saying. We can be encouraged and shaped and strengthened by your word. And that, Lord, literally you would form us by your presence into the people you're asking us to become, you're helping us to become. So Lord, shape us with your word today, all for your glory. And we know when, we do, when that happens, we then live the best existence that could ever live because we're living your way. So Lord, do your activity in our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this section that we just read, Peter is really, I think, as I see it, dealing with two things. He's dealing first with our attitude, a Christian's attitude in adversity, and in particular in adversity, but, but any time in life, but particularly in adversity, because he's going to say what happens when the heat gets turned up. And so a Christian's attitude in adversity, how we, how we are, are, approach it, and then Christian's actions 
in adversity. And always remember, attitude always precedes your actions. How you are on the inside will form how you act on the outside. So we're going to deal with it in that order that Peter does it. Christian attitude in adversity, and then Christian's actions in adversity. So let's start with the attitude in adversity. And that's really what verses 13 and 14 are about. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So Peter here is writing about finding uh, yourself in a situation where you may be being misunderstood or mistreated for living out your Christian values. He says this, what? You're suffering. You may suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now look at the text. What does he say should not be your attitude? What does he say should not be your attitude? Fear. Your attitude towards life should not be one of fear. And you can have an attitude of fear where you're always afraid of everything in the world. He's saying, no, as a Christian, your attitude should not be an attitude of fear. What's he say? He quotes Isaiah here, and he says, and do not fear their intimidation. No. How can Peter tell us to live a life, and these people are literally being persecuted, how can he tell somebody living in any level of adversity to live in that adversity, and even these people, we've not experienced this, but even suffer for your faith, and to not be afraid of that, to not have fear? Well, I see two clues in what he wrote here that help us understand how that can be true. The first is this. The first is found in the question that he starts off asking. Now understand, the question that he asks here is what's called a rhetorical question. You guys know that from, remember English class, what a rhetorical question is? It's a question asked to make a point rather than to get an answer. And he asks this question. Look at the question. Who is there to harm you if you do good? Who can harm you? Now he's not really, it's rhetorical. He's not really looking for an answer. He's not saying, well, Fred could still harm me. But rather, he's, he's not looking for that answer Rather, because he understands and he wants us to understand that because we are in Christ, this is the truth. There's really no one that can ultimately harm you. He's saying the answer to my rhetorical question, who can really harm you when you do good? And the answer is this, if you're in Christ, no one can really harm you. See, we have to remember the truth about our real life situation as followers of Jesus. And here's one of the ways we explain our our real-life truth around here. If you've been through the Good and Beautiful God class, you know this. What is the definition of who we are? We are ones in whom Christ dwells and delights. And we live in the what? Stable and unshakable kingdom of God. That we are ones in whom Christ dwells and delights, and we live in the stable and unshakable kingdom of God. That that's the reality of our situation. So who is there to harm you? No one. Because I, Christ dwells in me, and I'm living in his stable and unshakable kingdom. Well, as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of a story from the Old Testament found in the book of 2 Kings um, about the prophet Elisha. And it says this in 2 Kings about Elisha, that the king of Aram had been sending raiding parties to fight against and attack Israel. But before the king would go, the king of Aram would go to attack, God would tell Elisha 
uh, about the attack that was going to happen. And Elisha would tell the king of Israel what was going to happen before it happened so the king of Israel could be prepared for the attack or actually move and not be there for the attack. Well, this happened time and time and time again. And the king of Aram believed that he had, had a spy among them. Matter of fact, he said, there's people for them in our camp. And he's trying to find who's the spy in their camp that's tipping off the armies of Israel. But one of the, the men of Aram's army came to the king and said, King, there's no spy in the, in the group. Rather, God himself has been telling Elisha your plans before you do them. He says this. He says, God even tells him what you say in your bedroom. Everything you do, God tells Elisha. So the king gets angry and goes, well, I can solve this problem. And he, he sends out his army to the city of Dothan. And Dothan is where Elisha was living. And he was staying there with his servant. And he's in Dothan. And so the king brings his army and this little town of Dothan. He surrounds the whole town with his horses and his chariots and his army. And he surrounds the city early in the morning. So in the morning, Elisha's servant gets up, goes outside looks around and sees this army circling the whole city, comes back in in total fear, seeing what he sees with his eyes. He's afraid of what he sees. He runs back to Elisha. He's panicked and he believes, listen, we're doomed. We're going to be captured. The king has found out what we're doing, that we've been telling the army of Israel what's going on and they're going to kill us. And Elisha's in the house. And Elisha prays a prayer. For, his, for the servant. And this is what he prays to God. God, would you open up his eyes so that he would see the truth of what's really going on in the situation? And the Bible says that God opens up the servant's eyes and he looked outside again. And yes, he still saw the king of Aram's army surrounding the city, but around them on the outside of them and the entire mountains around them, he saw the horses and the chariots of fire Ever wonder where that term came from? The movie, Chariots of Fire? That's where it comes from. Chariots of Fire surrounding the mountains, the armies of God. So the, the massive armies of God are surrounding the mountains of Dotham. The little army of the king of Aram is surrounding the city of Dotham. And Elisha and his, and his servant are in the middle. And so what happens is God then in, prayer, in, relation, or in response to the prayer of Elisha, um, strikes the armies of Aram with blindness. And Elisha goes and he meets him. He goes, let me take you to where you need to go. And he takes him right to Samaria in the middle of the armies of God, surrounded by their armies. And everybody's saying, kill them. And Elisha says, no, God said, do this. Instead, feed them, bless them, and send them on their way. And so they didn't want, they, suddenly they didn't want to attack them anymore. Church, you understand, understand something here. You need to see, church, that what we see with our eyes and reason in our minds is often not the whole story. What we see, what we experience in our day-to-day -day life is often not the whole story. The whole story for us is, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the stable and unshakable kingdom of God. If we are in Christ and God's presence this story says God's armies surround us and we have ultimately then nothing to fear from mankind. So Peter here can rhetorically ask the question, who is there to harm you? 
You live in the stable and unshakable kingdom of God. And his answer is this. No one can harm you because God is on your side. His armies are bigger and more powerful than anything that man can throw at you. So he says, why, why, why would you fear? His first clue to why we would not have a spirit of fear is, listen, know the truth. God is holding you in his hands. And that brings us then to the second clue that Peter gives us about how we, should, we don't need to have fear even in adversity. Look back at the text. Look back at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You, even if you suffer, you are blessed. You ever say, Peter, you're crazy. You say, I'm suffering, I'm not blessed. No, he says this, even if you suffer, you are blessed. How can he say that? Well, this word blessed is used in another place in Scripture in the exact same way. And it explains to us how, gives us insight into how, even if we're suffering, we don't need to fear, that we can be blessed. We understand we don't need to fear because we are really blessed. Turn your Bibles back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Section in the Sermon on the Mount that begins, it's called what? The what? The Beatitudes. Look at part of the Beatitudes here. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have $10 million in a bank account. Blessed are those who never have any problems. No, what's it say? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, we're people who live in the stable kingdom of God, right? Kingdom of heaven. Blessed, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because your reward is in heaven and your reward is great. The reason that we don't need to fear what any person can do to us in this world is because we have the promise that we have the end secure, that we have a a secure future, and that secure future is called heaven. So what attitude can Christians have? Should Christians have, regardless of what anyone does to us? We have hope. Why? Because we have heaven. We have peace. Why? Because we have heaven. We can trust. Why? Because God's getting us to heaven. We, we live in a kingdom now. It's not just about living then, but we live in the kingdom now and experience all his goodness. But ultimately, no matter what happens to us, even if we're in the spot where people are in this world right now, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other places that are suffering, they don't need to ultimately fear. Why? Because they can have peace and trust and hope and not fear. Why? Because who can ultimately harm them? No one. Because they know where they're going. That ultimately, they have the security of heaven. So Peter says that our attitude in adversity can be hope and trust and peace, not fear. So what's our attitude in adversity? 
It's not fear. Fear not. What's our attitude? It's to have a, a position towards life that is filled with hope and filled with trust and filled with peace because we know whose we are and he holds, and he holds us in his hands. So he says, during adversity, what can your attitude towards life be? Not fearful. Hope and trust and peace. Now, if that's our attitude, what actions should flow out of this peaceful, non-fearing attitude that we have? What does, it say, what does Peter say about our actions that result from our attitude as we live in a life even where we don't fit? Well, that's what verses 15 and 16 are about. Look at those. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 3. But sanctify, he's just saying, he's saying, this is what you do. You have the right attitude and this is how it should, be, it should be revealed. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in these things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now in those two verses, I see three things here that really can define our actions, especially in times of adversity. The first one is this. Make sure that your priorities are in order. So if my attitude is right, how can it be revealed through me that first of all, I look at myself and I say, are my priorities in order? And this is what, where I get that from. Look what Peter wrote. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What's he mean by that? Well, what's the word sanctify mean? Sanctify means to set apart. So what he's saying is set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Or make sure that Christ, who's Christ? The one who gave his life for your life, gave his life for your salvation. That make sure Christ is Lord or the primary ruler of your heart and life. It's about making sure that Jesus Christ is really in the primary place of leadership in your life. See, because life, especially during times of adversity, will test who or what is really in charge, who or what you really trust, who or what you really follow. When everything gets shaken up, it'll show the truth of what, is, what or who is Lord of your life. And Peter's making sure that in our hearts, your greatest allegiance is to Jesus. So that when the heat gets turned up, and we might, you might say, well, we're never going to experience the experience in Afghanistan. Probably not. But the heat still gets turned up in our lives for our Christian walk. And I think in our culture, it's going to get hotter and hotter or turned up more and more. So when the heat gets turned up, um, what he wants to make sure is we're turning to him. We're turning to Jesus. He's saying, evaluate yourself. Before you go do anything, evaluate yourself and say, is Jesus really in the place of priority in my life? Because here's the idea, friends. Jesus is the only one that can see you through the difficulties of life. No one else. When you are in the worst situation and you're in the hardest time, the one that will see you through is Jesus. And he's saying, just make sure you're not depending on Mark. You're not depending on your bank account. You're not depending on your, on, on your whatever, on your country. You're not depending on whatever. You're depending on Jesus. So the first thing you do is you evaluate with the right attitude, then you evaluate your actions and say, my first action is, is Jesus really in the place of priority? And he says, and if it's revealed that it's not, and hard times reveal it, 
If you say, how did I react to that, that difficult situation? Did I run to Jesus or run away from Jesus? That will reveal it to you. Then he says, you know what? If you don't like what you see, come to Jesus and make it right. So put him in first place in your life. So make sure that your priorities are in order, that Jesus is in first place. And then next, what's he say from these texts? And this is kind of an interesting transition. He says, next, after you make sure Jesus in times of persecution and difficulty, first of all, make sure Jesus is in first place. And if Jesus is in first place, then what? Always be ready to explain why you place your hope in Jesus. So he says, in adversity, the way you live it out is always be ready to explain why you place your hope in Jesus. And I find it interesting here. That when Peter is writing to Christians about how to live in adversity, that he instructs us to be open to opportunities to tell others about our faith in Christ, about our hope in Jesus. What doesn't he say? And this would be our normal human reaction. Well, it's getting tough. So listen, church, just pull back. Listen, church, just protect yourself. That's not what he says at all. He says when the heat gets turned up, don't pull back. Don't just live in a position of protecting yourself out of fear. Remember, fear not. But no, he says always, always, and he says, doesn't say sometimes, he says always be ready to tell others why you have the hope that you have in Jesus. Now, I have found that as I share that message with people over the years, Tell, I tell, we, we share people, listen, be ready to tell others about Jesus, why you ever hope, that many Christians find that to be incredibly intimidating. They call me on the phone, they talk to me at church, and they say, Pastor, you know, I'm talking to this person, I just don't know what to say to them. And they find it very intimidating to share their hope. And I'll start off by saying this, church, don't be intimidated. Remember, don't be fearful. Do not fear. Rather, just start this way. Just tell your story. He says, he doesn't say preach a doctrinal position here. He says, tell about the hope that you have. So tell somebody this simple story and we can all do it. What was your life like before you met Jesus? Then how did you meet Jesus? What, what did that look like? How did you come into relationship with Jesus? And if since you've met Jesus, how has it made a difference in your life? You just tell that that's the story of your hope. This is why you have hope in Jesus. This is what he's done in your life. And listen to me, friends. In a world that's coming against Christianity, people can argue about positions of faith, but they can't argue really about what God has done in your life. You can say, well, here's the deal. This is what God's done for me. So you tell about your hope. And if it works then in that conversation or in that relationship of conversation, if it works to share more, then explain the basic message of the Bible to people. And you say, well, that sounds daunting. Well, I want to go back to something I probably talked about a year or two ago on how you could share that simple story by using four words. Anybody remember talking about four words, how to share the gospel with four words? I think it's really worthwhile today to review those four words because if we're going to be in a time of where the teeth's getting turned up and Peter's saying the way we react, the way our actions in a time of heat being turned up is that we are more aggressive at telling people about our, our hope in Jesus, then wouldn't it be helpful to have just a very easy tool in our toolbox to say, here's how I can share the gospel message with somebody. And it's four words, and the four words I'll go through, but the four words are relationship, re- rejection, and we'll go through these, rejection, rescue, and restoration. 
It's going to be the entire Bible in four words. Relationship. I didn't have to go to seminary at all. Bible in four words. Relationship, rejection, rescue, and restoration. And here's the story. I'll explain it. And I'll explain it with, with you know, more than just a couple words, but you can pull out just the four simple words and four statements. I'll summarize it at the end with just four concise statements. But understand this. Before we look at the four words, it's a story that you're telling. Get out of your mind that you're arguing with people about a theological perspective or say, our church believes this and your church believes that. Stop it. It doesn't work. Tell them the story. The story of God and his love for humanity and how God has rescued humanity. And put this, you're showing this called the, the meta narrative, the big story. And then you just help them find out where do you fit in the story? Have you experienced this part in, the, in your story yet? So here's the story in four words. Relationship. It all starts with relationship. It's where it began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that, right? And he created man, he created woman to be with him in paradise in the Garden of Eden. Genesis shows us that God created all the earth to be a place where man would thrive and they would what? Reflect God's image as they ruled the world in love the way God loved them, they loved him back and they loved his creation. In the beginning, in that relationship, in that beautiful picture of God and Adam and Eve and the animals in the garden, what do we know about that relationship? It was a place of no sin, a place of no pain. It was a place of no brokenness. Just God loving mankind and creation and mankind loving God back. This is the beginning of the love story that God began when he created everything. And it shows this about God. It shows that God is good, that God is loving, that God is for us, that God created everything in this world to be in beautiful relationship with him. That that's what you paint a picture of Eden for them. Say, this was God's original plan for man. Relationship. God created the world so that man could be in relation, the whole cosmos, so that man could be in relationship with him. So it starts with relationship. Beginning of the story. What's the next word? Rejection. It didn't take long for the love story, and this is a love story, to get messed up. Genesis 3 tells us that the crafty serpent it calls Satan approaches Edom at Eve and convinced her to trust him instead of trusting God. God had said that they should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that if they did, they would die, that God was protecting them from that. But Satan convinced them that God was actually restricting them, that God wasn't really for them. So both Adam and Eve ate, and their eyes were opened. It says in the relationship with God was changed, and for their protection... God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, keeping them from the tree of life so they would not live in that brokenness forever. Now, here's the thing you point out in this situation. When you tell that story of sin entering the world with the first first couple, you say this, notice who rejected whom. Because people get this messed up all the time. They say, oh, God's mad at me. God's angry with me. God rejects me. That's never the picture of Scripture. Who rejected whom in this love story? Man rejected God. Man rejected God and chose to listen to and follow Satan instead of God. God said, don't do this. And they said, we're going to reject God's way. And Satan says, do it. And they're going to do it. They're going to do the enemy's way, Satan's way. 
And that led to a broken relationship. All broken relationships. Broken relationship between God and man. Now God comes into the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding. And God says, Adam, where are you? Broken relationship. They're hiding. They say, we're hiding. We're afraid because you know we're naked. He says, how would you know that you're naked? You ate of the tree, didn't you? And so broken relationship between man and God. Broken relationship between man and man. Adam and Eve lived in perfection in the garden, and now they're blaming each other. Why did you do it? She did it, Lord. She did it, Lord. She... Adam, why'd you do it? Nah, blame Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Broken relations. And broken relationship between man and creation. Dave, you're a farmer. What did it say? It said the land would not be as fruitful as it was before. That now creation would be a mess. That broken relationships. All, and friends, all the brokenness and all the pain and all the suffering that has ever occurred and still occurred is t- in this world is tied to this broken relationship. Because sin and death enter the world, relationships are broken. And all of history, from that brokenness, that point of brokenness, until the rescue that we're going to talk about to, that was to come, is about man's attempt to make it on his own without God. I don't need God. The relationship's broken. And God's constantly coming again and again to reestablish that broken relationship with man. God reaching out and saying, you know what? Let's reestablish the relationship that I started in the garden. So it started with relationship. Then it starts with rejection. Man rejects God. And brokenness comes in. But then, praise the Lord for word number three. What is it? Rescue. Enter the hero. Every story needs a hero, right? It has a villain, the devil. Every story needs a hero. And who's the hero of the story? It is Jesus. He enters. One of the, probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. That's the entrance of the hero, Jesus. The prophets had foretold that a hero would come who would, for, who would forgive sins and give eternal life and rescue mankind from the chains of Satan. So Jesus came and he gave his life for our own lives and he broke the curse of sin and death that began at the time of rejection. He reverses the curse. And now in Christ, we have been rescued from sin and death and we can now choose to say no to sin and yes to God through Jesus. Jesus rescued us and he wants to rescue everyone. And then, the last word. What is it? Restoration. Because we have been rescued. And this is the part, if you know Jesus, that you live in from the time you meet Jesus for all of of eternity, really. Because we have been rescued, we are then being restored. Restored back to what God originally intended and even beyond that to something better. The relationship that was created perfect and whole was shattered by sin. But in Christ, our relationships are being restored. Now we are, as we are in Christ, we are children of God. A restored relationship with God. Now in Christ, our relationships with others are being restored. Now we can have relationships of peace with others. The only place we really find peace in this world and unity in this world exists between brothers and sisters of Christ. Because we are no 
longer different. Now we are unified in the same family. We're called Christian. We're unified together. Once we are rescued by Jesus, our life is now about restoration. The restoration of our ongoing relationship with God that we are becoming more and more close to God, deeper and deeper with God in the restoration of a relationship, restoration of His character within us. We're growing in Christ's likeness, so your goal now is not about what you accomplish in this world, it's about who you become, that you become more like Jesus. And then, friends, there's a promise of total and complete restoration. One day, new bodies. Who wants a new body? Suzanne's watching online right now. She wants a new body. A lot of us want new bodies. New bodies in a new heaven. Robin wants a new body. New bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. That is the promise of restoration. Living completely restored in relationship with God for all eternity. And friends, picture it like this. In the story you say this. It's like going back to the garden but better. Back to what God originally intended, God and mankind, to live in, in, in unity together and reflect His glory. But it's going to be infinitely even greater than that. Because God's going to then, there's no more sin, no more influence of that, just us living with God. So, so Paul is, or Peter is saying here, you know how you live in a time of, of, um, of uh, people coming, turning up to heat against you because of Christianity? He says, you know, you don't, don't be in fear. Instead, be ready to share about your hope. You say, well, how do I do it? Man, you tell this simple story in four words. Relationship. Our loving God created mankind for relationship with Him. Rejection. Man rejected God's way. Because of that, sin and death resulted. Rescue. Jesus came to reveal God and rescue mankind from the curse of sin and death. Restoration. In Christ, our relationship with God is restored and we have the promise of complete restoration for all of eternity with God. Friends, that's good news to share with your friends. Sharing that love story is a lot different than saying, do you know the Bible says this about the end times? Do you know what? I think you ought to share this and our church believes that and your church is wrong because of this. Or you know what? You know, no. He said share the hope you have. The hope is the story. It's a love story. And look what Peter says, how we should share that. Look at verse 15. How do we share that story? With gentleness and reverence. Friends, it's not about proving your point. So many times we want to do that. We want to argue with people. It's not about proving your point. It's not about winning a theological argument. It's about sharing God's love story so we do it with kindness and gentleness. He says gentleness and reverence. Because we are introducing people to the Prince of Peace in a world of chaos. We are saying Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And we're helping others to find the hope that we have found by sharing the story of love. That makes sense? Then finally, Peter says the other way to live. This is very briefly. Live your life, he says, just with a good conscience. Live your life with a good conscience. It's the third way 
that he says we should live out our lives as Christians, even in a time that the heat's being turned up. And it's simply this, what's that mean? Live out what you say you believe. Live out lives of love and forgiveness and generosity and kindness. Because we say that's what we believe. Live it out towards each other. Live it out towards people in the world. Be the first one to forgive. The first one to, to act in generosity. The first one to show love. The first one to be kind to another person. We live the kind of lives among the world and among each other that remove the possibilities of people saying that we're phonies, that we're hypocritical. That's what he's getting at here. He says when they slander you, they say all the evil things against you, and people look and go, that's not the John I know. That's not, that's not the Mike I know, you know. That's not the Becky I know. No, the, the person I know, they're kind and they're loving and they're gracious. So we live lives that line up with the words that we speak. So, what's a Christian's attitude? Wrap the whole thing up. What's our attitude supposed to be in a time like this? Fear not, church. Fear not. Instead, have hearts filled with hope instead of fear. And how can that then be lived out in this crazy world through our actions? By having Jesus as a true Lord of our life, making sure he's number one. Then if he's number one, sharing our message of hope with others. This is why. Here's the love story. This is why I hope in Jesus, because he's poured his love out on me, and you can experience his love also. And then I validate it by living in such a way that no one can say, yeah, your words don't line up with your actions. You say he's a God of love, but you're filled with hate. You say he's a God of unity, but you're full of disunity. No, we live lives that validate the message of hope that we speak. And Peter's saying, if we do all that, then God is going to do amazing things. Friends, I believe we are in the greatest season of opportunity that we've ever lived in in our lives as the church. I believe as the heat is being turned up, people are being freaked out. As the world is getting crazier, people are afraid. When you and I can stand in the midst of the, of the chaos and they can say, how come you're not afraid? You go, what could harm me? I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in a stable, unshakable kingdom of God. And they go, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me tell you a love story. You like stories? Let me share a love story with you. This is it. And you say, you know what? You can know the Prince of Peace the way I know the Prince of Peace. And they look at you and you go, you know what? I think what you're saying is probably true. And you know why? Because the way I see you live in the neighborhood and in the workplace, the way I look at your marriage and what I see, that reveals the message that you're saying. Peter says if we'll do this, we'll, we'll reach the world in a time of chaos. And that's exactly what these people did. They didn't let hard times hold them back. The church expanded during that time of history like it never has before. And we, I think, have that same opportunity now to not depend on the fact that we're accepted. To not depend on the fact that, you know what we did for years? We'll just bring you into church and, and let you see that we're just living life better than the rest of the world. We just have it better, your best life ever, than just live here. No, we're going, no, guess what? We might, be, we might have the heat turned up against us for what we believe. People might reject us for what we believe, but man, we got a joy that won't go away. 
Our marriages, we're loving better than anybody else on this planet. We're loving each other. We're loving our kids. We're loving our church family. We're loving our communities. We're serving. And people see it and they go, man, your actions line up with your words. I think I want what you got. You know what? There's a virus going around, right? There's a greater thing that can infect the world. It's the love of Jesus. And hard times give opportunities for those messages to be shared. So my hope for you today as you walk out of here is that you'll walk through this week with your eyes more open maybe than they were last week. You'll be, okay, God, heat's getting turned up in the world. Where do you want me to share your love? Who do you want me to reach out to? Who do you want me simply to say this? Hey, you know what? I know a really great group of people. We meet on Sundays and Wednesdays. Why don't you join me? I'll pick you up. You just do that. and Share love with other people. That's not so hard, is it? Tell your story. And that God will change the world through us. Amen? Hey, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that through your word, you encourage us to not shrink back, but to go forward. Lord, that your word today is one of, of, a, of, of destiny. It's one of saying, move forward. That don't let the things of this world stop us. And Lord, the reason we know we can do that, Father, is because we know it's not about us. That nowhere in here does it say, rely on yourself. Rely on your wit, rely on your resources. It says, rely on you. And you are trustworthy. And so as your church family today, Lord, in your trustworthiness, we ask that as we interact with the world around us this week, that you would show us how instead of shrinking back, instead of holding back, we can not badger people and not... not um, prove our points, but rather we can love and just share hope. Hope in you, hope in that beautiful story. Your story. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Work through us to reach this world. Churches, we're in prayer. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're just praying. Maybe you're here today and your heart's full of fear. You're a believer, but your heart's full of fear. Be honest with yourself about that today. Say, Pastor Mark, I'm just afraid. If that's you, I want you to do something today. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I want you just to slip up your hand to the Lord and say, Lord, okay, all over this place. Just slip up say, God, I'm afraid. You can put them back down. I'm afraid. There's nothing wrong with being honest. It's only right to be honest. This world's concerning to me. Holy Spirit, you've seen every person in this room and every person watching online who's saying, I, I am, I'm afraid of what's going on in this world. We would ask right now that your presence would come into every life that acknowledged that. Right now, Holy Spirit, that every single one who was bold enough to say, I'm afraid. 
that right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, you would literally invade their presence. They would feel your reality right now. You would open up their eyes like you did to the servant of Elisha. And they would see the truth that there's nothing to fear because your armies, your presence is surrounding us. And that, Lord, fear would be replaced by peace right now in this moment. And we actually experience right now by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, breathe on them. Let them feel your peace and help their minds see the truth of the fact that the armies of the Lord, the presence of the Lord surrounds them and they have nothing to fear. Let that settle deep into their souls this morning. Now maybe you're also here today And you say, Pastor Mark, I don't know Jesus. You told this story about the the hero came. I've heard this all before, somehow about creation and Adam and Eve in a garden and them getting kicked out. And it didn't maybe make sense, but now I see this little short story of how God made us for a relationship with him, but mankind rejected that relationship by choosing to go Satan's way instead of God's way, and that, that you rescued us in that lostness, and that you came yourself, Jesus, into our world to reveal the reality of what you're like, God, that when we look at Jesus, we see God, but then you gave your life in our place. You, you broke and reversed that curse that said, because of sin, you will die. And you said, but in me you will live. And you're rescuing people. And then you want to restore us to lives of beauty and fullness and glory. And you look in that story and you say, you know what, Pastor Mark? I've never experienced the rescue of Jesus. It says he's done it for the whole world, but but I've never had that affect my life personally. And today you're saying, you know what? I need Jesus. He reached the world and I, I want to be included in that. I want to turn away from my old life of me being God and, and, and me being ruler of my life and I want Him to be ruler of my life. I want to follow Jesus. I want to come under the umbrella of His love and His grace and live in His kingdom and be His follower. I want to receive forgiveness of my sins and be made brand new. If you've never done that before. If you've never done that before and you're saying, I want to ask Jesus in my life today. I want you just to slip up your hand. I'm not going to call you or embarrass you. I promise you that. All right. Praise the Lord. So Father, you see every heart. You see every person. And we ask this right now, the same way we asked earlier for your presence to be so real. Lord, and people who are feeling fear, Lord, today that everyone would experience that's looking would say, right now, Lord, they would know this, that you love them. And in this moment, 
If you're saying yes to Jesus, simply say, Jesus, I welcome you into my life. I want to turn away from my old life. I want to turn to you. Lord, please make me brand new. Wipe away the junk. Fill me with your love and fill me with your presence. And from this day forward, I want to walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, if you did that today, the Bible said Jesus always says yes to you. He receives you with open arms. And he welcomes you to his family. If you did that today, you are, you are in the family of God by turning to Jesus.